Hello, you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Wednesday's Plumfield in Person. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft, and I'm here with Sarah Masaryk, and we have as our guest today, Tanya Arnold from Biblio Guides and Jill Morgan from Purple House Press. Diane, I think that we are some of the luckiest people alive. We get to talk to really fascinating people about really good stuff. And so I am thrilled that today we are here welcoming our good friends, Tanya and Jill, about a collaboration that they have been working on. It is a special project coming out from Purple House Press as a response from a prompting from BiblioGuides because both Tanya and myself and others in the homeschool community have just a real hunger for some for more and more living resources in sort of some unexpected genres. So we're very excited today. Tanya, can you tell us how this idea started? Yeah, sure. I had originally heard of Elizabeth Ripley. I believe I was listening to a delectable education podcast on artist study. And I think during that podcast, they typically will recommend some authors or biographies or books that they appreciated. And I think that's where I first heard about Elizabeth Ripley. And so that would have been four or five years ago, I think. Mm -hmm. So I started researching her and trying to find these biographies. And even at the time, they weren't incredibly easy to find, but they weren't um, incredibly difficult either. I do not own the entire collection. So I'm thrilled that this project is underway because I really want these books and I want them for everyone else as well. So I had been purchasing her books and picking them up. And at the time, wasn't needing to use them in my school. They were a little bit a higher reading level. I think I, my daughter would have probably been three or four at the time. But I was just really wanted to understand them more and have the books in my home. So I was doing that. And one day my mom was over and she likes to just come grab books off my shelf. And a lot of times she'll then bring them back and say, this one's junk or I really love this one. <laughs> like this one's a gem. Yes, I have some where she, there's particular authors that I might really love. And my mom's like, no. Yay, not. mom. I know. <laughs> and I always love hearing her perspective. Because, you know, this is the woman who raised me and a lot of my taste in books and my love of reading came from her. Sure. But but these ones, she had picked up a few of them off of my shelf and taken them home. And she just came home and she said, you don't know what you have here. These are a treasure. These Uh are so really done. And I was like, okay, wow, I just got to keep that on my radar. And I read one. I've read Leonardo da Vinci by Elizabeth Ripley. And I loved it. I loved the storytelling style of it. And the information that she felt like was important and how she brought that in. But the one thing I didn't like is that they were all black and white photographs. I hate that with art books. The masters worked so hard to blend their colors (laughs) and bring out the very best of nature and life in the color. And I mean, I understand it was a cost issue, but... Why yeah, well, but I-, I have always wondered how how are you teaching kids about art if it's in black and white? <laughs> and they are grainy black and white photos too. They're not even sharp and in focus. Right, right. Yeah, so I'm not sure um, exactly like why they made that decision. What I do know, because I've done some research about Elizabeth Ripley, is that she had a sister who was a juvenile editor at Oxford University Press. Elizabeth in her younger years during college had gone and studied art and she'd studied theater design. 
And she had done some illustrating for Oxford University Press. And I think probably because she had that connection with her sister. But she was traveling in Europe and she loved art and she had been studying art. She studied French. So she wanted to try her hand at writing some biographies. So I believe the first one she did was Leonardo. And she submitted it to her sister and the editors at Oxford loved it. And that kind of started her down this path of writing these these art biographies. And they were really well received and she got really great reviews for them. And so I think because they were meant for schools, they were probably trying to keep the cost down. Also, in some of the books like the Leonardo da Vinci book, they had to acquire the rights to those pieces in order to, to put them in the book. So I don't know if the costs, like Jill can speak more to that, but if they were paying for the rights for a lot of those photos, and maybe depending on what the copyright holders would allow, like not sure all the decisions that must have gone into making it a black and white edition. Although at the time, that was still probably considered spectacular, right? Except for, mm-hmm. but now right. for this day and age, right? Yes. We want more than that. But since it's possible, we want it. Yeah. yeah we, we see it on the internet and we can, we right. get color. We're, we're really blessed, we are. right? We can have color, vivid color in just our magazines and in our mail every single day. So we definitely are spoiled. <laughs> so about a year ago, I reached out to Jill and she had always been doing picture books and she had started doing more chapter books. And I think that was about the time we were doing some nature books and talking about some nature books together. And I just said, Hey, why don't you take a look at these? And at the time, from what I recall, she was swamped with a lot of projects. There were some books that would take years for the rights to come through. So, right. so she was always working in this staggered fashion of what was possible at the moment and then what came forward. And so She's always got a lot going. So she glanced at them and she was intrigued, also turned off by the black and white photographs and then what the work would entail (laughs) to get color (laughs) pictures. So it was a bigger project than than maybe other projects. Yeah. And I I do have to say that the grainy black and white photos just didn't turn me on. and, And I had never really done nonfiction before. And so just the combination wasn't really a fit with what I had had practiced doing in the past. Jill, this is a good time to mention that thanks to your friendship with Tanya, you've been doing quite a bit of nonfiction these days, haven't you? Yeah, I guess you would say she's changed my mind on doing those sorts of books. I think that you are a particular blessing to all of us homeschoolers out there who have a real need of nonfiction and uh as one of the buyers of your books. I'm loving all these nonfiction books. They're marvelous. And I'm using them in my homeschool constantly. You know, in artist study, you really focus on the art, but you may decide to read a biography with your students. And other philosophies also love to study artists and have biographies, kind of all of that. And so she said to me, like, she doesn't brush me off ever. She was just like, let's put that on the back burner for just for a minute. Like, that's, I'm not saying yes. I'm not saying no. Let's just, I need to pause on that. And I, you know, I'm used to that. I'm an idea person. So (laughs) I get a lot of people saying, let's put a pause on that idea for a minute. (laughs) Just put a pin on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, goodness. And so the year went on. And then maybe a month ago or so, I was doing some homeschool planning for myself. My daughter's now eight. And I was looking at the artists with the particular plan that I'm going to use. And I thought, oh, oh, those Elizabeth Ripley books. Mm -hmm. Oh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) what shall we do with those? (laughs) So I messaged Jill and I said, hey, take a look at these. And she had kind of forgotten about them. It took a little bit of a conversation before she went 
Oh, wait a minute. I'm having a niggling in my brain that we've talked about. <laughs> I had completely forgotten about it. So it's a good thing she brought it up again. I had forgotten this conversation that we had had and, and Tanya looked it up and it was April of 2021 and she brought it back up in July of 2022 and I had completely forgotten. Once you said yes, you completely fell in love, right? Oh, I've been immersed in Elizabeth Ripley's biographies for the last month. Yes. And it's literally one of the only things you're talking about. It's the only thing I've been working on for the last month. I've done three of her books and I can see why Tanya loves them so much. They are just, they're engrossing. They just draw you in. Putting the color pictures with it has been so fun. It's just been unbelievable. And I've had some extra space in the book and I'm adding in some extra pictures that sort of that go along and complement her story. And I'm going to stop at three, but I really want to continue on. And there's seven more that I plan to do. So when these launch, so you're going to finish these and you're going to take a little break from them. And then what's going to incite you to go back? Well, there's two books that I put on hold to do these Elizabeth Ripley books right now. So I really have to get them done. And then when I'm done with those two books, I'm going to do Winslow Homer because he just arrived in the mail a couple of days ago. Yay! <laughs> I feel like this is the power of when it's the right time for things yeah. to happen, that things click into place. Like when it's not the right time, they don't. And so I don't think it was right a year ago for whatever reason, but this time when she looked at them, inspiration just struck and she immediately fell into them like really quickly. I mean, I think I messaged her. She went to go look at them. We use internet archive to look at things and kind of talk about things. And the next thing I knew she had chosen her first one and Jill loves art as well. And so she chose one of her favorite artists to start with and she fell into the project and into the story. And the next thing I knew, the thing that I thought would be the most difficult for her and the thing that she had said would be the most difficult was the replacement of the art in color and what that was going to take if it was even possible. And the next thing I knew, she was just flying, flying with it. Yes, yeah. she was flying with it. And she was so excited with the the pictures and the quality that she was seeing again. The reason we're so blessed in this day and age is the quality she was being able to find so that she could provide high quality, artist steady, appropriate pictures to put into the, these books. And she was just replacing them with the ones that Elizabeth had chosen that went, that tied into this narrative of the story of these lives of these great artists. And, you know, in the beginning, these were to be helping children fall in love with the great artists of the past. Mm -hmm. And Jill is just continuing that work. We don't have, in my mind, as many biographies of artists that have this quality of this living quality that inspires and engages and ignites minds and to have the art right there where you don't have to go look it up or find that piece of art. The other thing that I think is amazing, and Jill can speak to this too, is that these books are not cluttered. If you think a lot about a lot of the books that are artist biographies right now that you might find, they're they're really dry often. Yeah. And then yeah. oftentimes they're cluttered with the art. It's just really simple and elegant, the style that they created back when they were publishing these. And so you just have text on one side and the, you have a painting on the other side. I know Jill added some paintings here and there, but it's still a very aesthetic, enjoyable, peaceful experience when you open those books. So 
Jill in her own right is an artist. And so <laughs> they're magnificent. Well, Elizabeth Ripley, she just tells the story of their lives like she's having a conversation with you. She just starts yes. from when they start to become an artist and she goes throughout their life like every few years uh, is it contained on a page and she has a picture that goes along with it at that point in their life. And the story just progresses as as their fame grows or their art grows, she just adds more pieces of their life. And it's just like she's talking to you. And that's why it's so interesting. I mean, that's the very definition of a living book is a living book is not one that is pedantic or it's dry. It's not overwhelming. It is a book that invites the reader, particularly a child, into a conversation that feels very alive and very um, edifying and yet instructive at the same time. But by all means, it avoids condescension and it avoids um, this overwhelming need for information that a child may not necessarily care about. A living book also, I think part of the definition has to be that they stay relevant, which is the same with any classic, that even though the book may be 100 years old, it is still talking to you. Yes. And, and not all of that, not all books are able to do that. Well, some of these books are almost 70 years old. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I feel that they're still relevant. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right, Tanya. The writing itself is so conversant and elegant. But Jill, you've worked really, really hard to preserve like how much white space is on the page, um, how much, if there is like a, a lot of white space and it's too much. You very tastefully have added another piece of art that ties in nicely with what's going on so that it's a little bit more of the feast. It's just you've struck a really beautiful balance with these books. I, I think she would be pleased with the outcome here. I think she would be very happy that it's all in color now. Yes. And I also like the page I was talking to you about yesterday with Daniel in the lion's den. I found a study that Rubens had done of the lions. So I included the study of the lion and then you can see the finished lion in the painting and they're side by side. So it's, I, I think children will get a lot out of that. They'll see the process that the artist went through to end up with the final painting. Well, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I think that's one of the one of the other really important things for teachers and homeschoolers is that if we're doing this with our child, we're not just handing it to them and saying, off you go, devour it, report back and pass your test. No, no, no. We're we're sharing the experience with them. So it has to be something that's compelling for us, too. And that's, I think, another thing that speaks to a living book is that it speaks to a lot of audiences. Mm -hmm. So, Diane, you and I can love it just as much as the little people in our care do. Right. And if it if it's a good book, then we should be able to, right? <laughs> I don't think there's an age limit on these books. Mm -mm. Yeah. I read a review. It was from the New York Herald Tribune Book Review. Louise S. Vegetal said she found it a fascinating introduction to Leonardo for any age, for it interprets and reveals him in all aspects of his genius. Oh. All right. And I love that because while these were being marketed and they were for children and being placed in schools again a, a living book is should be great for any age and you know you're getting these reviews from different reviewers around the country that were saying these are great for all people 
grown up so beautifully and well done. Yeah. And how many of us today did not have a robust living education and did not have exposure, right? All, all of us. Mine wasn't even close. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's one of the really exciting things is that these books, maybe they were originally intended for a middle school student, but there's a lot of us who don't have even an elementary understanding of Raphael or Rubens um, or Van Gogh. And so what a treasure these are for all of us to go back and get the education we never got. That, that's me. <laughs> I, mean, that I love these artists, but I didn't discover them till I was an adult. And after reading these books, I realized how little I actually knew about their lives. I only knew their paintings. I didn't know the story behind the paintings. You know, I hadn't really thought about this before, but when I was in school, in junior high and high school, I took two pretty high-level art classes. And then when um, after I graduated, I took another art class at the college. Nobody ever talked to me about artists. Huh? Never. <laughs> Oh, no. (laughs) So what I know, I found out on my own. So you just studied the art from a technical perspective, but it wasn't alive? It didn't. Right. Well, and isn't that interesting? Because so often we want to separate creation from the creator. And maybe that's most part of the, just this idea that we can, but you can't. Maybe, maybe. I really love this quote from C.S. Lewis, and I'm sure you guys have heard it, where he said, No book is really worth reading at the age of 10, which is not equally and often far more worth reading at the age of 50 and beyond. And I think that's when you know you have excellent books in your home and for your children. And Jill, that's what you're providing, these stories that we're all loving reading as adults. I mean, I'm reading some of Jill's books just for myself Yeah, um, (laughs) for a lot of reasons. I'm reading them to preview them. I'm reading them to talk about them. Yeah, but it doesn't I, mean that it's not a book you're like dying to get back to every day, right? <laughs> right. I was right. Like, why like, do, why do I have to read Miss Mantle out loud? It's <laughs> slowing me down. <laughs> right, right. And you know, when you're just, when you as an adult are loving reading these children's books because they're so engaging and you love the story and the development, it's, ah. Oh great. (laughs) For me, it's validating because uh, I never stopped reading children's books. So it makes me feel like it's okay that uh, now that I'm uh, older, (laughs) that it's okay (laughs) to still be reading young adult books. (laughs) Diane, wouldn't you say that that's one of the first things we always tell moms when they're thinking about homeschooling? Oh, it's an excuse to read good books all day. (laughs) Yes. And you get to keep it, um, keep educating yourself. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, I'm not a homeschool mom, but I kind of feel like I am because I'm homeschooling myself. You yeah. are. <laughs> well, <laughs> but I think you're, I think, books. Jill, you're also a homeschool grandma because you're giving moms these things for their kids. That's right. I like that. Thank you. Yes. I'm a, I'm a homeschooling grandma. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, and this is a fun time to say that we have a lot of conversations with Jill. And when this episode airs, people will have already had that sense that we we do get to talk to Jill a lot because she's doing the most exciting stuff. And I, I sure hope everybody's as, as excited as we are about all the things that are happening. 
So, but not everything makes it into the podcast, right? We do a lot of editing. And so this is Plumfield, which is named, you know, for Louisa May Alcott's Little Men and Joe's Boys. And Alcott had a compendium of short stories called Aunt Joe's Scrap Bag. So all of the little cuttings that don't make it into the podcast that are wonderful little gems, I have tucked into a folder called Aunt Jill's Scrap Bag. Oh, that's cute. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> so at some point, there will be a podcast episode of Aunt Jill's Scrap Bag with all the little things about, because I don't think Duchess Bakes a Cake. I don't think that story necessarily got into a podcast anywhere. And so there's just all these funny little stories that just good little gems that we're keeping. So you are not only a homeschool grandma, you're also <laughs> Auntie Jill. So Jill, you begin with Raphael. He's your favorite, right? Is that why you started there? I did. There's a list of 10 artists and Raphael's name jumped out at me. I, I thought, oh, I have to try this. I have to go see if I can find nice color pictures of his work. And it's amazing that a lot of the renowned museums of the world have decided that they should share their artwork with the world. And they have high resolution pictures of a lot of the famous masterpieces online. They're not hoarding them. They're sharing them. They believe that these works of art should be shared. And, and I agree. So when I found that out, my whole opinion on doing this series changed because I realized I wouldn't have to pay expensive licensing fees right. to get these nice pictures. Because the first book I did was Raphael. And I noticed at the bottom of every picture of one of Raphael's works, there was a photographer's credit. So the previous publisher had to send a photographer around the world to get pictures of all these paintings, like to Rome, you know, and wow. we, we can't afford to do that. So oh. I'm just glad that these museums are sharing the, these works of arts with everybody. And see, this makes sense. My family and I went to Chicago in the spring and we went to the art museum and we went twice. Because we spent four hours there and could not not go back. And all of the art that we had been studying leading up to that, we have done a couple of great courses, company courses on the masters. We have, we have canvases at home. We have had art books, coffee table books, all the things. Nothing slowed us down from wanting to go and see these paintings for real. So this is brilliant that the museums are doing that because you don't even know what you love if you that it's there if you've never seen it. And to be able to see it in exactly. high res, yeah. Well, I think the artists would be happy too. I mean, their work, all the paintings are in the public domain now from these three artists. But some of the museums are not that way. Like they make you pay a licensing. They're in the minority. Most of the museums have all decided that they need to share these works. Well, I don't think that the artists intended for their work to belong to one person. I mean, I understand that they had patrons and that was very important to them. But I would think that they would be saying, you know, the more people who see this, the better. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I agree 100%. So you started with Raphael. Did you learn anything new and special about Raphael? I took an art history class in college, and it was my favorite class. It was the first time I ever learned anything about art. 
But I realized when I started reading these biographies, all I learned about in college was the artwork. So I knew nothing about Raphael other than what he had produced in his style. I didn't know anything about his life. So as I was reading this book, I, I just felt like I knew him. She starts out when he's a young boy. His father was a court painter for a duke. <laughs> and that's where he learned his trade. He helped his father. He watched his father learn from him. And then his father passed away when he was 11. So then he was um, apprenticed another artist and he learned more. And eventually he started doing work on his own. But I had no clue that this was his life. I didn't know what was behind his paintings. I didn't know how he got his start. So it's just very interesting to learn all these little pieces of information. And I think it helps you understand their art better. Absolutely. You know what was going on in their life because their styles change as they age and mature. And you can see that in their paintings. I think that's especially true from what you can see in the Van Gogh book. And mm. when you shared that with me, you know, so his first paintings were so dark. And you could tell he was really wrestling with demons in the early earlier part of his professional life. And then how how he comes into his own style by the end and how the paintings have evolved dramatically by the end. When he was 16, he had an uncle who worked in an art gallery. And so he went to work in that art gallery and he worked there for four years. And that's how he was introduced to these paintings. And after that, he decided he wanted to be a missionary. So with his church, he went to Belgium and he was trying to help out the poor coal miners in their hard lives. And he just started drawing them and painting them and sketching them, kind of like what a photojournalist would do now. He was just recording their life. It's a part of life that had been overlooked. And if he hadn't done this, there would probably be very little record of how these people lived and how they dressed, what their houses looked like, um, just how hard their lives were. He drew one of the one of the drawings, his early drawings was a man sitting by a hearth reading a book. And you can just see how an ordinary person lived back then. And then I added a picture to that page to compliment it. And it was a woman sort of in the same scene and she's doing her sewing she's mending some clothes and it's just you know they're just not the typical things you would see in artwork back then so uh, it was very interesting and and and, the, and all of his tones were very dark like you said um, he was battling with depression even when he was young and so it is very dark there was almost no color in his work everything was like a shade of brown or uh, khaki or you know a dark sepia. green very sepia tones mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but i did find out that a lot of his drawings that we look at now there it looks like they're on tan paper but he drew them it was actually blue paper so it's interesting that that color was in the background of everything he drew on top of Wow. So the paper was blue. And then is that why he used like a brown crayon or a brown pencil? I think so. I think he liked the contrast between the blue and the brown because okay. he did use brown chalk, brown pencil. 
And, but to now everything, it just looks completely brown to us because the, the paper is turned brown. Oh, that's why it looks brown. Okay. Oh, how lovely a contrast that would have been, that blue and brown. I think so. Yeah. Wow. So you have really, really fallen in love with Van Gogh in this process. Would you say, has he eclipsed Raphael in your mind? Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think it's because we know so much more about Van Gogh than we do about Raphael because Van Gogh was a prolific letter writer. He wrote to his brother. He wrote to his family members. He wrote to his friends. Most of those letters have been saved and cataloged. And so we can learn about him from his own words. And I think that makes him so much more interesting just because we have access to what he was thinking. You know, some of my favorite biographies, I think of David McCullough's of John Adams, and I think of Joseph Pierce of G.K. Chesterton. Those are some of my favorites because I feel like the author is allowing the the subject to tell their own story through their mm-hmm. journals and their letters. And I find those to be the most compelling biographies. So it seems like that's what Elizabeth Ripley's done for you as well here. Yeah, I'd have to agree. She definitely has. There are a lot of quotes from Vincent writing to his brother. That's who he communicated with the most. And uh, it's just, it's so interesting to see the bond that they had and how they worked together sort of as a team. And that's another thing I wanted to mention. The world would not know about Vincent Van Gogh and his genius if his brother had not supported him throughout his whole artistic career. I found out that he used to send his brother 50 francs every month. And that might not sound like a lot, but one of the houses that Vincent rented was 15 francs a month. So wow! So that paid for his rent and his art supplies. And I, I guess there wasn't much left over for food. So that he, he, he <laughs> skimped on the food and had really nice canvases and paints and brushes and all that. But then... It wasn't just his brother, which most people know about, because when Vincent died, he was 37 and his brother was younger than him. And he died six months later, which is very tragic. But after that, his brother's widow inherited this massive collection of 2,100 pieces of art that Vincent had produced. And and it, it's interesting. He would do he would paint all these paintings and send them to his brother in hopes that they would sell, and they never did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he only sold one painting near the end of his life. But his brother saved everything. He saved every sketch that Vincent made. He saved every letter that he sent them. He saved all of his art. He's all of his sketches of art, and his widow inherited all this. And she had nothing else. Um, They were not wealthy. So she spent years cataloging this great amount of work. She cataloged all of his letters. She transcribed them. She went to all the places where Vincent had lived and tried to track down all the paintings that he had given away to people because she wanted to track where all of them were. And she also collected letters that he wrote to those people. And that's how we have some of those letters now. And she was the one that promoted Vincent and got him 
the fame that he deserved. A few months after her husband died, she had an exhibition in her house and she got in touch with Vincent's friends, their artists, and they helped spread the word. And that's just what she did. She just kept having these exhibitions and she lent his paintings out to other museums that were having exhibitions. And he died in 1890 and she spent years transcribing all of his letters and she finally had them published in 1914 in three volumes. That's how many letters there were. Wow. And when that was published, that was when he finally got the attention he deserved because there was like this mystique that he had, this, this tortured artist. People could finally find out what had happened in his life and what he was thinking when he painted this painting. And, and, and then they could go to the exhibition and see that painting and that's when he just started to take off in 1914, like 24 years after he died. She kept at this the whole time. And then she died a few years after that. And then Vincent had a nephew, her son, and they named him after Vincent, Vincent Willem Van Gogh. When he was a young man, he inherited this vast amount of artwork and he preserved it all. He kept it all intact. And towards the end of his life, he created the Vincent Van Gogh Foundation and donated all of the paintings to them. And they paid him a token amount of money, like a fraction of what it was worth so that they could live off of. And then they started the Vincent Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. And that's where most of his artwork is. It was those four people. It was like Team Vincent in my mind. <laughs> it took a whole team of people to get him finally what he deserved. And now he's one of the most loved artists on the planet. We have each of those three people to thank in addition to his genius. And as you say, their work allowed us to know his story. So not only did his work survive, but his story. And as you said earlier, when we know their story, they teach us how to see their art. And we can see a lot more in it because of that. And that's why these books are so important. Yes, I, I couldn't have said it any better than that. That's why this one book is just outstanding in my mind. What covers did Elizabeth Ripley have? Are they are they photo covers or what did they look like and how what did you choose to do for your covers? Her covers were just like the books, they were black and white. Pictures on the cover are even hard to see. The contrast is not there. It's just very grainy. On Van Gogh's I used the same painting she chose for the cover, but of course it's in brilliant colors now. <laughs> right. And because these books are about artists, I think just thinking about art and book design as an art form of it in of itself is kind of an important concept and one that we often take for granted. And so Sarah, you had brought up kind of like the white space and how the white space was used and things like that. So one of the things that I find really fascinating about Elizabeth Ripley is that she was an artist and she actually had her own business from somewhere in the 40s to the 50s, where she illustrated and wrote Christmas cards. And she was really, really successful oh, selling fun. Christmas cards. And then she was she illustrated some books for Oxford University Press. And then she wanted to write these stories. And as we can see, she is an excellent author as well. But one of the things I read 
that I thought was really fascinating, I learned from Virginia Lee Burton, and she also was an author and an illustrator. But what was important to her was that you have the story, especially in a picture book or a book that has illustration, you're pairing it with art in some fashion. And that in and of itself is an experience and should be masterfully done. So there was a time when she illustrated a book for someone where she did not write the story and she was mad, 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 mad when it was published because she felt that the use of white space, the way the illustrations paired with the text, the way it, the way everything laid out spread to spread was horrible. Mm. And she said, I will never illustrate a book unless I am the author also. And if you look at most of Virginia Lee Burton's books, which are still classics, right? Right. Yes. They're classics. They, if you look at them from an artistic perspective, like just set the story aside and you just go page to page, it, the the use of white space, the way things are laid out, what draws your eye, the, the use of color. Would you put in a couple of titles in case people don't know who you're talking about? Oh yeah. Mike Mulligan, Choo Choo, The Story of a Little Engine, Katie and the Big Snow, Maybell, The Cable Car. The Virginia Lee Burton was both an author and an illustrator artist who believed mm-hmm. that the artistry went beyond the illustrations and into the actual layout and form of the book. And you can see that in Elizabeth Ripley's books as well. And possibly because she had an art background that the layout of the books is so artistically pleasing and engaging that you can really enjoy the story and just take in the art in a really powerful way. What I think is brilliant is that Jill is the same way. So what Jill has also done is taken these books and she does this with all of the books that she brings back into print is it's not she's not just copying and like if you go to amazon you can find a lot of books back in print that are just scanned and they're terrible and they're expensive Mm -hmm. so jill is taking it like she's also an artist and so what Mm -hmm. you're finding is that she's taking the work and recreating it oftentimes in a way that it is a piece of art in and of itself and it's just so magical to me to be seeing elizabeth ripley having done that creating pieces of art Right. And that's what Jill is doing. And she's also utilizing the white space. like, And then just taking it to a level up. I think Elizabeth Ripley, if she could see it now, must be just thrilled. so thrilled yeah. to see her works being brought back into print, but better than she probably could have done them at the time because she wouldn't have had the ability or the access right. to do the colored art or, or they didn't have the funding. And I told her that it was really well received, that she got just excellent reviews. The only thing that even came sort of close to being a negative review was that the horn book said oh they had a wish for color reproductions and then they went on to say this book is so good in every other way that it is a very worthwhile addition to the field and Mm -hmm. so even back then like the only thing that might have set somebody off was horn book saying we wish they were in color and now there's not one thing they're perfection no objections and then like we said they're wonderful for all readers of all ages like my mom My mom is in her 70s, and she just fell in love with these books, too. So I just love seeing the artistry of this project also, not not just the importance of the story, which is immense, and not just the importance of the art, which is immeasurable, but the artistry of the product that you'll get to have in your home is going to be just an experience, which every book should be an experience. So this is one of the reasons why I'm glad you're here, Tanya. And all all along, I've been saying, I want Tanya on when we have Jill on because Jill won't let us brag on her. But when, <laughs> but when it's me and Tanya, good luck, Jill. <laughs> 
Jill's going to yeah, get this. I'm I'm she just did. glad some people notice like book design and layout and, and appreciate white space and that you shouldn't cram as much as possible on a page yes. so that you can have 10 fewer pages in the book. <laughs> but I so much appreciate his post-impressionistic drawings and paintings more than his earlier periods. Mm-hmm. And they this book concentrates on that. It, it talks about his early life, but then it goes on and shows how he progresses. And just he, by the end of his life, he is obsessed with color. He says that color will be everything that in the future, the artist will realize that color is what matters. And so one of my favorite paintings that he did, it's called the night cafe. And it was a room in a cafe where basically homeless people could pay a small fee to sleep at a table during the night because they had nowhere else to go. And that was him in many occasions where he could not afford to pay the weekly rent at a little hotel because he had a studio, but for some reason he didn't want to live in his studio. Like Mm. it didn't have a bed, but he still would not live in his studio. So he had to stay in these little hotels or these little cafes and he, and this cafe is during the day is like a bar restaurant kind of place. And they make extra money by letting homeless people sleep there at night. And so the picture is just a bunch of tables cluttered with glasses on it. Chairs are all over the place. There are people sleeping at the tables. There's a pool table in the middle and the whole painting is yellow, red, and green. And they're brilliant, yellow, oh. red, and green. And just the color combinations are just magnificent. And the proprietor is there and he's wearing a white coat, but it's really a green, a shade of green. And his hair is green. And the lamps, like Elizabeth Ripley says, they are a savage lemon yellow. These colors are just so bright. This is my favorite painting of his now. And and she has a quote from him on the page where he's writing to his brother. And he says, it is one of the ugliest pictures I have ever done. Wow. (laughs) And to me, it is just, it is just brilliant. And it's one of his more famous paintings now, but in it, he says that he was always trying to get the brightest yellow he could get I guess like because he made his own paints and it was just a hard color to get and it was just never as bright yellow as he wanted but I think he got it here and so that is now my favorite painting of his wow and so why is it your favorite painting just because of how vibrant it is Yes, I love the colors. The floor and the bottoms of the walls are yellow. And then on the tops of the um, the room is painted red. And the ceiling is green. And there's the green pool table in the middle. I just love this. I love the composition of it. And it's also, I think half of it is just knowing that this is where homeless people went to sleep. What a moment to have captured. Yeah, I mean, and this was his life. Mm-hmm. He he went for days without eating. He would only eat bread and drink coffee. This book is so good. There are so many quotes from him that just explain 
what he was doing with each particular painting. And she tells us that he was there. He stayed at this place for, for three nights. And this painting he did in three nights. Wow. Did he go back to his studio by the day to then paint it? Yes, he would paint in his studio during the daytime, but he didn't have enough money to afford to buy beds to put in it. So what else do you love about his art? What What's another picture that really speaks to you? I liked his portraits of his friends. He moved to the south of France to a city called Arles. He lived in that house that he rented for 15 francs a month, and it was called the Yellow House. And it was on the corner of two streets. And he, he painted it all basically in yellow and blue. And it's I like this painting too. And it shows you this little tiny yellow house where he had his studio. And in the book, she tells you that this window was his studio. And later when he got beds, that window was to his bedroom. So you can picture exactly where he lived in this little yellow house. But I got so intrigued with this painting that I wanted to know what everything else was in the picture because there are buildings all around it. And I found out that it's uh, this, this yellow house is attached to an identical yellow house. It's like two little townhouses together. But the other yellow, part of the yellow house was a grocery store. Oh. And I found that out because I found a sketch that he did of this. And there's an awning over it. And, and he wrote the word in French for groceries. And it's, oh. But that word is not in the painting. So then I thought, well, hey, I, I know what street this building is on. So I Googled the street and Yellow House. And I found a description of every single building that is in this painting. And unfortunately, the Yellow House was destroyed in World War II. It was, it was oh. bombed to smithereens. But the building behind it is still there. On the street, they have a picture of this painting of his on the street. You can see the building behind it. And then on the corner, they have this painting. And you can just see what it would have looked like back then, you know, because you're standing on the corner that he was standing on when he painted this. Is that the picture you showed to me where they had, uh, it was like, almost like a split screen, or it was like a it moved from black and white into the full color? That was his bedroom in this house once his brother sent him money for the beds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one of his more famous paintings, too. It's just called The Bedroom. Yeah. And it's where, he, it's where he lived in his studio once he had a bed. And the, all, all it is is there's a window, there's a little single bed, there's a little table and a couple little yellow chairs. And they're all pretty bright colors, but the yeah. museum that owns this, I, I think it's the Van Gogh Museum, they did a study of this painting, and um, in Photoshop, they restored it to the colors they think it was when he painted it, and they have it on their website where you can just have a slider go across the painting, and you can see like the before pictures from the 1800s when he painted it to what it looks like now, and you can see how it's faded. And it was just so bright. Like these walls that look like they're baby blue, they were bright purple when he painted it. So he was, he was all about color. He definitely was all about color. We will definitely link to that in the show notes. So that would be so cool because kids can just, they can just move the slider back and forth and it's just, it's magical. They can see, they can see how it's faded over time. 
Now, you're going to be printing these books in offset printing. Is that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Why did you make that decision? I was not originally going to do that, but then I started working with these pictures and just looking at the art, and I knew that they could be reproduced more accurately with offset printing. But I'm also going to have a set of eight prints done by the same printer that are going to go along with the book. So people can have the option of getting the books or the books and the prints together. We are so excited about that because when we study art, we love to have extra pictures um, that we can hang or display um, or that people can pat, little hands can pass around. And so I think that for those of us who are actually using these for art study, I think that is the gold standard, Jill. So thank you for doing that. That's good to hear. Yeah. Art study is so magical sometimes. Like we've done it where we have the children take a look at the art and we all look at it for three minutes quietly and then turn it over and then have everyone say back, you know, what, what did they see in the art? And without looking at it. Right. And I just look forward to doing that with these, like being able to have these stories, Jill, and have you providing the art prints with it because our family experiences have been really memorable. We were studying an artist one time. And at the time I had a, my daughter, my youngest was five and I had two teenagers and we were looking at this piece of art and we turned it over and we were all sharing. And the five-year-old says, my favorite part was the village in the background. And me and my two teenagers went, there wasn't a village in the background, love. And she's like, no, there was. There's in the background, in the very, very far, there's a village. We turn the painting back over. And guess what? There's a village in the background. <laughs> in a church. Oh, in a church. And she said, and there's a church. <laughs> and it was, it, it was, it was like, once I saw it, I was like, oh my goodness, how did I miss that? <laughs> and my teenagers too, we were all astounded at what she had seen. And I just, mm. so I think the fact like, the, and it's like, I'm never going to forget this story, right? This experience was just mm. so eye opening to me. And it was something that was, it stood out to her for whatever reason. And so I think the fact that you're pairing these books with high quality art prints that we can have, read the stories and then also do art studies in a really meaningful and powerful way that you can't really do from a screen. You've probably, I mean, Jill, you know that too, right? As an artist, like, the colors on screens can be different and vary and you can't see the children looking at a screen and, and you're never sure if they're gonna match, right? Yeah. Right, right, exactly. Right. And so to have the actual print and then you can put it on the wall and have these experiences, just that pairing is gonna be magical. Well, it was interesting because with our Tuesday night classics club, I would always have whatever we were studying on the refrigerator so we could see it at mealtimes and so on. And I didn't really notice that our book club friends were noticing it until one day they said, wait, no, where, where was, what was it last week? I said, what? <laughs> they said, they walked over and said, no, I love this one, but I really love that was last week. And I thought, well, there, there we are. That's exactly the whole point is to invite this appreciation of the art and to share this with other people. And then it, it's speaking to everybody. So it helps to beautify our homes as well. I love that. But I want to say one more thing about Vincent Van Gogh, about a quote that I added to the back of the book. Do so, please tell us. There is a lot of white space on the last page, and I just felt it needed a quote from Vincent. And I found the perfect one in a letter he wrote to his brother Theo five years before he passed away. And it says, if anything good happens in my work, consider half of it as your own creation. 
I love that. It's beautiful. Yeah, that's that's their collaboration. Without the two of them, we just wouldn't have any of these paintings. And you know, so often today we hear about people who are self-centered and looking only for their own glory. And here you have a beautiful example of collaboration. And we wouldn't have Vincent van Gogh if not for the collaboration. Right. If he had not had the support of his family, we would not have his work. That's right. So then, um, Jill, do you want anything you want us to ask you about how the books will be available or when or anything you want to talk about before we kind of just wrap it up? Yes, these art books, I'm having them all, all three printed together. We're expecting books to be here the end of November, early December. And then we'll start letting people know about them then. Great. And then you said they're going to be available as their each book is its own entity. So that you wouldn't buy them as a set. You would buy them individually. And then you can buy them with or without the prints added on. Is that right? Yeah. So on each page, there'll be the option to buy the book or to buy the book and the eight prints together. Marvelous. And what kind of paper are the prints uh, printed on? They're going to be printed on 16-point cardstock, which is pretty thick because yeah. we want it to hold up to children handling them and looking at them and turning them over or doing whatever they do, hanging them <laughs> on the refrigerators, <laughs> whatever. And we want them to be durable. Marvelous. And will they have like a glossy or a sheen to them? They will have like a slight sheen to them. They're not going to be real glossy. They're going to have... Um, the same coating they put on the pages of, you know, like all of our books, like Night of the Moon Jellies, the nice hardcovers, sure, it's going to be sure. that slight sheen on them that's going to be on the art prints. Because I think you said you didn't want the very glossy stuff because Correct. the glare, we're just going to have like, it's just going to be a slight sheen on them. Perfect. So they'll have a beautiful, elegant finish, but they will not be too reflective of light. And so they'll be easy to study under any light setting, basically. Is that right? Yes, exactly. I think that's really great because when I have ordered from another company some art books with prints, the prints have been very high gloss. And when they were high gloss, you couldn't study them well. So then I found a downloadable option. And when I printed those, I print them on cardstock. But of course, I couldn't do a great job of printing them. And so mm -hmm. I, put, I put them underneath lamination to try to, um, de you know, try to make the colors a little bit more vibrant and to protect the image. And again, it was not a great option. It was better than what I had, but it wasn't great. So I'm very excited about this because this sounds like it's going to be art book quality, which is exactly what you want for studying. So thank you. That's that's why I decided to have this printer do it because they specialize in doing all this custom work. And I felt these books deserve to have that sort of printing. These will really be legacy books. These are not just going to be a book that you're going to buy once, use for your unit, put it on the shelf, and then sell it at the end of the year to somebody else. This is going to be a book that's worthy of being in the library, on your coffee table, used again and again and revisited throughout the years. No, I hope that's what people feel about these. And I think after they read Elizabeth Ripley's words, I, I think they'll agree with you. Yay. Marvelous. Well, Jill and Tanya, thank you so much for being with us today and spending all this time with us and revealing your secrets and giving us all kinds of inside stories. 
I do love the story behind the story. And I love having you two here as a dynamic duo because I I think, Tanya, you do a wonderful job of of pulling more out of Jill. And Jill, I think you just do a wonderful job of taking Tanya's ideas and bringing them to life. So I'm really grateful that for the both of you, and I'm grateful that you were able to join us today. Thank you. Well, I, I appreciate, I think we both appreciate it. And I liked having Tanya here just because I wanted to hear her side of the story. Yeah, thank you for having us. And likewise, I love to be Jill's friend and see like what she's creating and be able to share things with her that um, I know that other people are going to want. And I love seeing these things come to fruition. And I want people to understand the work that's behind it. It's not a simple process. I'm excited that she can share that in a more powerful way so people can hear why these books are so important and why you might want them in your home and why they're they're worth investing in. So thank you for having us so we could share that. And yes. Tanya, why they're worth waiting for as well, because they do take time to make and to make as carefully and beautifully as Jill is doing that. Yeah. And I've been waiting for five years. So <laughs> That's a few more months, right? <laughs> yeah. So I, I can wait a little longer. I mean, I, I've liked the ones that I have, but they're just not as great not having the color. So I'm extremely excited to have them in my home. And because I think they're good for anybody at any age, I think it doesn't matter that my kids are even out of the home to have them in our home. They can all still enjoy them. So it's worth the wait. 